My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, June 22nd, 2011. Mm-mm. We're going to do our light edition this week. And I'm kind of cheating. I'll explain here in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There's a lot of people running around making up stuff about God, and they shouldn't be doing that. And uh, we take them to task. We con- we compare what they're saying to actually what the Scripture says. And uh, many times we find uh, the, what the Scripture says and what they say, well, they're as far away as the East is from the West. And if you can figure out how, the, how far away that is, then you'll understand how, well, how bad their doctrine and theology is. So we believe that God's Word is true. It can be understood. It can be trusted. And then it gives us a clear message, a clear gospel, and a clear, uh, you know, and, and, and clear doctrines and theology to proclaim. And uh, when uh, there's a deviation in that, well, we we got a problem with that, and we've got to fix things up. Anyway, uh, today uh, is uh, Wednesday. We're midway through the week, and we're going to do our light edition for the week. And this is the uh, final new episode for this week. My daughter is getting married, and so I've, I've got some traveling that I have to do uh, for the wedding. And so uh, Thursday and Friday are going to be best of editions of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, and uh, but I'll be back in the saddle on Monday. So yeah, I just wanted to let you all know that. But uh, anyway, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to continue uh, working our way through uh, some of the fantastic, fantastic uh, resources, uh, you know, sermons uh, uh, preached by uh, uh, Pastor Doctor Reverend Doctor Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist Church on his uh, Pierce for Our Transgressions sermon series. The name of this sermon is entitled Delivered Over Death uh, Over to Death for Our Sins and he's going to be preaching uh, about uh, you know the, the penal substitutionary atonement from Romans chapter 4 verse 25. Romans chapter 4 verse 25. So without any further ado and without well without any commercial breaks for this. So this will be a commercial free edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, we're listener supported radio. You know the drill. Visit visit our website. We truly do need your help, especially during the uh, lean summer months. But anyway, so without any further ado, without any uh, commercial interruptions, here is uh, Dr. Mark Dever, delivered over to death for our sins. Many of you will understand that our scheduling a Henry Forum on, on the Narnia Chronicles is not uh, without purpose. There is another Narnia movie scheduled to be released in just a couple of months. And that's why we're having this Henry Forum with Michael Ward 
who's uh, a good friend of Michael Bart Smith's. He's the chaplain at Peterhouse College in Cambridge uh, and has written on this. We invite you to come to that at 7 p.m. on Tuesday night. But, you know, if you think those Narnia books are just sort of cute children's stories that everybody likes, uh, you maybe haven't been reading as much as you might. Polly Toynbee, one of the most powerful columnists in Britain and a leader of the British Humanist Association, reviewed the previous Narnia movie uh, in a subtly entitled article, Narnia Represents Everything That Is Most Hateful About Religion. (laughs) I, I love the subtlety of the humanists. She stated that, quote, Of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the notion of the Christ who took our sins upon himself and sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. And then she adds the question, did we ask him to? Oh, well, we think today many people don't care so much about fussy old doctrines. They want experience. They want a church that's lively and friendly. They they want a community of people that they can belong to, not doctrine. And so we, we relax our grip and think that the main thing is belonging, not believing. Well, even pastors' meetings tell pastors that. The main thing is belonging, not believing. And the whole theologies arise, which encourage us in our relaxation. Even many pastors are diminishing the importance of doctrine today. So, for example, in Rob Bell's book, Velvet Elvis, he suggests that the important thing is not doctrine, like he says the virgin birth, but the life lived. Thinking that certain doctrines are essential, he argues, diminishes God. Such defensive confidence make God seem small and limited. And as if he is reliant on them. And certain doctrines come up for particular abuse. So, not, not, and I mean by that, not just by columnists, by humanists, but by those who call themselves Christian pastors. Another pastor, in his recent book called Reimagining Christianity writes of a thread of just criticism which, quote, addresses the suggestion implicit in the cross that Jesus' sacrifice was to appease an angry God. Penal substitution was the name of this vile doctrine. Was. Hmm. Was the name of this vile doctrine. And I don't doubt for one moment the power of sin and evil in the world or the power of sacrificial love is their antidote And the peculiar power of the cross is a sign of forgiveness and restoration, but making God vengeful all in the name of justice has left thousands of souls deeply wounded and lost to the church forever. End of quote. Friends, I could go on the entire length of this sermon just giving you quotations from people who call themselves Christians. And not just Christians, but evangelical Christians who are disagreeing with, to put it mildly, attacking, more flatly, this doctrine of penal substitution, that Christ bore the penalty in our stead, the penalty that we deserve for our sins. And that is why we are spending the first few months of this new year going through key passages of what God teaches in his word about Christ's death and resurrection, about the atonement. And this morning, we are again in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 4, verse 25. You'll find it on page 1,115 of the Bibles here in the West Hall that are provided, 1,115. And you'll find it on page 1,181 in the Bibles provided here in the main hall. Romans chapter 4, verse 25. While you're turning there, I'll just remind you that Paul has in the first three chapters shown that Jew and Gentiles all alike are condemned before God because of our sins. There is no way we will be declared right before God, no way we will avoid condemnation 
by our own actions. And so by chapter 3, verse 20, he has shut us up to a hopeless existence there is if it's based on our own actions, our own righteousness. But then, verse 21 of chapter 3 says, but now... This is the passage we looked at last Sunday. How God has presented Jesus Christ as a propitiation, a sacrifice to assuage his correct wrath against us because of our sins. And to restore us to a right relationship with God if we will trust him, if we will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and the promises of God. And then... Paul makes the argument here in chapter 4 that this is nothing new, that it's always been this way, that justification, being made right before God, has always been by faith. Abraham, the father of the faithful, Abraham himself was justified before he had done anything good or bad. It says, Paul then in Romans 4 quotes Genesis, it says that he believed God, he believed the promises of God, and God credited it, he accounted it, to Abraham as righteousness. So he has, he has brought in chapter 4 even the example of Abraham, the, the chief of the Jewish nation, the progenitor of all the Jews, to say even Abraham himself is an example of justification by faith alone. And then he summarizes this powerful chapter, this example, with this verse, verse 25. He, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. This is such a concise and compacted statement of biblical truth that many scholars have wondered, is this an ancient creed or part of an ancient creed uh, that has gotten embedded that Paul used, that he quoted, knowing that the Roman Christians would be familiar with it. The verse is fairly straightforward. So in our time this morning, what we want to do is do, as it were, a kind of a series of studies and meditations on different parts of what we see here. Five points, six if you include the conclusion. And we begin with that most basic fact in our passage. Number one, Jesus was killed. Jesus was killed. Some people don't know much about religion. And they assume that Jesus and Socrates and Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad all died a peaceful death in their old age in their own beds. Well, Socrates was about 70. Buddha was 80. Confucius was in his 70s. Muhammad was in his 60s. Jesus, however, is in stark contrast to all of these. Jesus was the only one who was killed. True, Socrates had a judicially mandated suicide. But Jesus was the only one who was violently killed... And what's more, he was only in his mid-thirties. It wasn't an accidental death. He was killed by the state. Most people around the world, if they know any fact about Jesus, seem to know this. Perhaps it's all the visual images that there are of Jesus being crucified that have made this part of the life of Jesus so well known. His crucifixion made the incarnation, which was already grotesque to the Greeks, downright grisly. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about this in 1 Corinthians, about how scandalized the Greeks were. at this idea of the supreme God not only taking on flesh, that's bad enough, but then suffering. But it is the widespread offensiveness of this idea that also gives even the most skeptical historians confidence in the truth of it. It is not a story you would make up. If you were trying to concoct a religion, you would not begin here. You would not include this. Were it part of the historical record, you would attempt to expunge it. But here it is. Jesus is killed. Crucifixion was a severe punishment. There was great suffering. There was profuse bleeding. Jesus was scourged so severely as people were generally before they were crucified, that he couldn't even carry the crossbeam of his own cross. He'd no doubt lost a lot of blood. He had open wounds on his chest and back. It is gruesome to consider for us. But friends, it was even more gruesome to hear the crucifixion told of by those who had themselves witnessed crucifixions all too often. 
They knew what they were. Of all the punishments of the ancient Mediterranean world, crucifixion was particularly detested. So, for example, in stories from ancient Mediterranean cultures, the hero that you're to identify with is never crucified. No, friends, this is in the stories of Jesus because it's true. Jesus was killed. He was crucified. Ropes and nails were used to keep him offender that he was to Roman rule on the cross. Such a death was reserved for those whose crimes the state most wanted to discourage. Sometimes just the threat of some crucifixions would cause a besieged city to surrender. The punishment was hated and feared, and so the Romans used it to break the wills of those who resisted their rule. They would crucify rebels especially, and particularly if they were of a lower laboring class or they were foreigners. And Jesus was both. Now, all this makes it even more amazing that Jesus would use such an image earlier with his own followers in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, when he says, anyone who does not carry his. And then he used a word that was not a religious symbol at all. He used a word you were not supposed to use in polite company. No doubt conservative Pharisees would write him off as being vulgar because he used such language in front of people publicly. But Jesus said, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Can, can you imagine the effect of that? Imagine if you, in the, grim, in, in, in the Jim Crow South, if, if you had a teacher stand up and saying, if you want to follow me, put on your own noose and follow me. Friends, it would have been that shocking, that impolite, that off-putting, that offensive to teach that. Who's going to follow you if you teach like that? But then that's what Jesus was teaching. And to people who would have been tragically aware of that cost, it was extreme humiliation, shame, even torture. Jesus was so killed. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you probably already knew that. Now, that's probably not information to you that's new. Christ was crucified. Many churches even have physical representations of the cross uh, prominent in their place of meeting. But anyway, in studying this passage, we must begin simply by acknowledging the fact that Jesus was killed. Now, a, a word to my Christian friends here. How could you ask for popularity as a Christian? I'm preaching to myself here as well, but I'm going to say I and you, because it's just going to be easier. What are you doing? You've chosen to follow the one who said, take up your cross and follow me. And yet you want popularity with this person or or this group of people or this set of people or for this this end or that. I, I don't know how we could make the Christian message any clearer than what you see here. He was delivered up to death. If you claim to follow him, do you expect a different end? Oh, it may be we live in times of, of prosperity and of, of some acceptance of the Christian faith legally in this land where we're allowed to meet like this and not suffer repercussions at most of our workplaces or among some of our families. But friends, it need not always be that way. It may not always be that way. What if those external allowances fail? Then do you still follow Christ? How can you demand popularity when you're following Jesus, who was crucified? 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Our whole congregation should present a willing and typical portrait of self-sacrifice for others if we're truly to reflect Jesus and follow him. Okay, a second point we should notice. A second point. 
There was more to Jesus' death than a court-ordered Socratic suicide or even a crowd-demanded crucifixion. There was a reason. There was a purpose in the death of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins. It's number two. Jesus died for our sins. Now, that Jesus died, as I say, is not much disputed. But, but why he was killed is... You know, many have touted Jesus as a great example of selfless love and portray his death as the highest example of such love. And yet, if all the idea of Jesus dying as a substitute have been evacuated, have been cut out of our understanding of the cross, then in what way is Jesus' death loving? The preachers that I cited at the beginning of the sermon, quoting from their own writings, decrying the idea of Jesus' death as a substitute for such a one. How is Jesus' death an expression of love? James Denny used the example of a man sitting on the end of Brighton Pier. Imagine him falling off into dangerous waters, and a second man comes along who jumps in to save the first man and perishes in the rescue. Now, Surely this is an example of heroic selfless love because that second man's self-sacrifice accomplished something. It accomplished the saving of the one who was in peril. So if the cross accomplishes something, then the cross is an example of amazing self-sacrificial love. But the way many people today have disconnected the death of Jesus, from any such accomplishment, from any kind of saving substitution, it's left, as it were, just hanging there with no purpose. We all know that Christ's death is supposed to be about love, but the theology of too many people has left us unable to say how it's so. It's no better to go back to our peer illustration than if a man is sitting on the end of the pier safely fishing, having a second man come running down the pier toward him, exclaiming, I love you, and to show how much I love you, I'm going to jump off this pier and drown. Well, friends, the the first man is in no peril. This man's drowning accomplishes no saving thing for another person. So in what way is that showing love? What kind of example is it? The sacrifice of Christ is reduced to a purposeless suicide if it affects no salvation by the substitutionary death of Christ for sinners. But what our verse here tells us is that Jesus was delivered up to die. He was sacrificed on account of our trespasses. Those false starts that we've made in life. He was sacrificed for them. Those offenses that we have committed against God and against others. It's because of those that Jesus was handed over to die. He was given over to die in order to pay God's just penalty against us for the evil we have done. His death was then a substitutionary death. He was put to death. He was killed, as Paul says here, for our sins. Scholars can debate how much it was the Passover season, how much it was the Romans, but we know theologically he was killed for our sins. There are no Jews to blame. There are no Romans to blame. There's us to blame for our sins. We've seen this idea already in Isaiah's picture of the suffering servant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. John the Baptist, when he first sees Jesus, points and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul refers to God as he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. To the Galatians, Paul wrote, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The Apostle Peter wrote, Christ died for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The Apostle John wrote, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friends, I could go on and on. According to the clear testimony of the Bible, Jesus was delivered over for a purpose. For our salvation. 
Jesus is our substitute. He was substituted for us. Again, we read in Isaiah, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So what do you think about this? Do you have any sins? Any of you? Anything you've done wrong? Any person you've harmed? Any grudge you've been bearing? Anything you're even thinking about right now that you've done morally wrong? Anything that a good God would condemn? What will you do with those sins? What will you do with those sins? Friends, that question is far more important than whether or not you come back here again next Sunday. Or you give any money to this church. Or you vote in the election. Or you get fired from your job. Do you realize this is more important than the next doctor's report you're going to get? What will you do with your sins? They're undeniably yours. The God who will act as judge knows all. There's no court of appeal from him. No evidence needs to be presented or argued. He knows the truth before you open your mouth. What will you do with your sins? Jesus Christ has come to be your Savior. If you will only turn from your sins... And trust Him that He has died for you to pay the penalty for your sins. Look at us here this morning. We are all those for whom Christ died. Those members of this congregation assemble here as this one group every Lord's Day. African Americans and Chinese, Indians and Caucasian, Democrats and Republicans, in our 20s and in our 50s, women and men, married and single, college students and those with a high school education, stay-at-home moms, hill staffers, lower middle class, upper middle class, all the way the demographers would divide us, we all know that we have a more fundamental unity. And thus we all meet together every week, spending the first day of the week together. We, we spend the morning together and then most of us come back and spend part of the evening together. Why would we act all together as a unit in that way? Because we perceive a more fundamental unity in our week, every week, than all of those other divisions that divide us in the world. We perceive the unity that we have in Christ. We are all sinners for whom Christ has substituted himself. And that radical divine act overcomes the divisions that we know. And instead of us being separated by all the things the people of the world are separated by, we are brought together as a testimony to the truth of Christ's unique action for us. We are those who need a divine substitute and who have been provided with a divine substitute. I'm sorry to say that many of the pastors who decry what they call the language of violence in the theory of substitution are all about social justice and racial reconciliation, but they have forgotten the most basic linchpin of what will bring about those matters. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is powerful to destroy the divisions of this world. That is why we as a congregation will major on the cross. Because it is at the cross, at that level ground, that we are brought together to see our need and to see the full provision that we have in Christ. Parents, do, do your children know why Christ died? I'll bet they know he died. But have you made sure that they understand as best you can make them why Jesus died? Husbands, you realize that Christ giving himself for us is the God-given model for your love for your wife. How humbling is that? To realize that God has left us a, an instruction on marriage 
in the most pointed way imaginable. At the cross, he has showed us how we are to love our wives. Have you humbled yourself to love the other sinner in your marriage in that way? My Christian brother or sister, do you climb up those steps every Sunday burdened with guilt? Feeling down and bad as if there's some way you need to perform on a Sunday morning in order for God to once again be sufficiently pleased with you to allow you to go on through another week? Friends, that's not the gospel. That's not the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you feel there's something you still need to do to gain God's favor? There isn't. There just isn't. There is nothing else you need to do in order to gain God's favor. God has done that for you in Christ. God has provided a substitute that would bear God's correct punishment of us for our sins, that would bear His wrath for us. And so we are left in this incredible state of freedom and acceptance. And indeed, for us to think there is something else that we need to do is to take away from the sufficiency of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. Friends, we don't gather here on Sunday mornings in order that by doing so, Christ will save us. But because Christ has saved us, we gather here to sing His praises and to hear His Word read and preached and prayed. That's why we love to to hear and sing great truths like we've been doing together today already. This the power of the cross, Son of God slain for us. What a love, what a cost we stand forgiven at the cross. Jesus died for our sins. Now, sometimes people misunderstand this. They think that it is the loving son who saves us against the reluctance of a stern, unpleased, difficult heavenly father. But what we see in this verse is not that at all. Number three, it is God that delivered up Jesus to die. Number three, it is God that delivered up Jesus to die. We know that Jesus willingly laid down his life. So the famous scene in the Garden of Gethsemane is about in the Gospels when Jesus prays to do his Father's will, not his own will. It says in 1 John 3, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. In John 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. In our verse, Romans 4.25, that passive tense of delivered up, that passive tense here indicates divine action. It implies that this action had been done to Jesus. He had received the action. And it implies then that God is the one who did that. Because when you don't state who the action is, and you can tell from the context that God would be suggested, it means God did it. So God delivered Jesus up. We saw this already in our passage last week. If you look up at, verse, at chapter 3, verse 25, we read that God presented Jesus Christ Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. So it was God who handed Jesus over. Paul even uses the same verb in chapter 8. In verse 32, as he uses here, when he, when we, where we read that God gave his own son up for us all. And the idea of God giving him up, giving the Messiah up to die, echoes what we've read in Isaiah 53. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, behind the anger of the crowds, lay the plan and purposes of God himself. This is undeniably what the early Christians preached. So Peter, who himself felt keenly responsible for denying Jesus right in his hour of trial, Peter preached and prayed this great truth of responsible human action, but somehow God sovereignly overruling. So at Pentecost, Peter preached 
This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Oh, friends, if you have a theology that's not up for that, you're not done yet in trying to figure out the basics of the Christian gospel. Because then Peter prays the same thing a couple of chapters later in Acts 4. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, my non-Christian friend, I wonder how this seems to you. You see, this is how we as Christians understand that God is both holy and good, And he is loving and merciful. We think this Christian message gives free reign to both. That both are fully accepted. That we minimize neither his holiness nor his love. I wonder what you think about God. Obviously I'm not speaking to those of you who are atheists. But we we have many friends who believe there is a God but they're not Christians. I wonder how your understanding of God measures up to the Christian gospel. How do you have a God as good as this, as holy as this? But then if you do, how do you stop him from becoming just a sort of stoic, removed God? How do you portray anything like the love and mercy that we see in Jesus? This is our best understanding. This is what the Bible seems to clearly teach. That a holy God has made us in his image. And that we've sinned and rejected him. And that we are culpable. We are guilty for those actions. And yet God in his most amazing love has come seeking us. The eternal son of God took on flesh. Lived a perfect life and died on the cross. Paying the penalty for the sins of all those that would ever turn from our sins and trust in him. And God raised him from the dead as this verse in Romans 4 says. For our justification. You see how God's holiness is not compromised in that basic message of Christianity? And you see how God's love is fully expressed there. How do you understand God to be holy and so loving? I'd love to talk to you at the door about that afterwards. Or if you're a college student or intern, I'll be at the lunch a little bit later downstairs. If, if, you're, if you're not either of those, just turn and talk to the person next to you. You're at church. I give you free permission to have a religious conversation with a stranger. You know, I don't know if you're going to be getting a Methodist or a Baptist or a nothing. You know, but just turn and speak to each other about this. It's an important topic. How could God, how do we understand God to be so good and so merciful? I think the Christian gospel provides the answer to that. According to the Bible, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in planning and bringing to pass our salvation. Now, for those of us who are Christians, what should our response be to this? Well, where do you begin? When when you look at something as horrible as the cross, and I think given the life that Jesus lived, few things that we can imagine would be more horrible than the end of his life on the cross. If that's what you're seeing, what's your response to that? When you find out that in that... God is somehow sovereign over it all and is bringing it all about for your blessing, for your good. Well, I think one learns to trust God, even in the darkest times. Even as the Lord trusted in the Garden of Gethsemane. Friends, Jesus was right to trust God in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can't fake up a time so dark that God shouldn't be trusted through it. My Christian brother or sister, you cannot think up a time so dark that God should not be trusted through it. That's what we learn from seeing how God overrules even the wrath of men to accomplish His greatest purposes of love. This is why we as a church begin our times by praising this great God and celebrating Him. Because it was God who planned our salvation and God who has saved us. But Jesus' death is not all we need 
to read of in this verse, we also hear, number four, we also hear that Jesus was raised to life. Jesus was raised to life. Look again at our verse. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Again, that verb there is passive, just like the delivered. So the raised, and that lets us know that it was God who raised Jesus to life. Though this isn't as surprising to those of us, at least who are Christians. Uh, we know God's almighty, and giving somebody life seems like a good thing to do. It's, it's the last one that causes us to stumble, thinking that God would, would deliver Jesus up somehow. But here, that God would raise someone to life seems extraordinary. It's certainly not normal in our experience. We've never attended a funeral where we expected the person to get up in the next few days, unless, as Christians, the Lord were to return. Still here, what we see is something that Jesus predicted many times. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus predicted his resurrection. So in John 2, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The temple he had spoken of was his body. And friends, this resurrection sets Jesus apart. You know, no such resurrections are claimed for Buddha or Confucius or Socrates. Indeed, Muslims can even go to the place in Medina where Muhammad's body lies buried in the tomb of the prophet at a mosque in Medina, Saudi Arabia. My friend, it it was staring at this that God used more than anything else to move me from being an agnostic to being a Christian. Jesus was raised from the dead. How else can you explain all the things that happened then? There are so many reasons I could give that indicate this. I'll just give you a few. Why do you think the chief priests paid off the guards of Jesus' tomb? What were they trying to silence them from saying? Why else did so many people claim to see Jesus after he had been crucified, but only for 40 days? At the end of 40 days, those claims stop. Why else would Matthew have reported that some doubted. I just have to tell you, as an historian, to me, that, that's a note of authenticity that I don't expect if the story is concocted. Why would he record in a gospel about Jesus that some people doubted the truth of the resurrection? Well, it must have been because he knew it was true. And he knew there were so many people out there who had been witnesses, they all knew it was true. And, but he's just trying to factually record that some did doubt it. If Jesus was not raised, what accounts for the transformation in the disciples? How do you account for Peter's change? I mean, something happened because a few days earlier, his hopes are dashed and he is denying Jesus in front of a few people he's never even met. And yet, just a few days after that, he is fearlessly preaching about Jesus and explaining his death to the very people who killed Jesus. And it's not only Peter, it's all the disciples. Friends, how do you explain that change? Why did that change happen? Why is it that a denial of the resurrection never figures in early anti-Christian literature? That's the obvious point to go for. The Jews hadn't been expecting it. The Greeks hated the idea the physical body was yucky anyway. So why have the hero, the incarnate God, being raised bodily from the dead? It wasn't to market the idea because it's a cool idea. Why would you do that? And why would people who don't think what you're saying is true not write against that? It's the obvious weak point. But they don't. Why do you think that is? I think it's because too many people knew it was true. They may have been staggered over what its significance was, but the fact of Jesus' resurrection, even Pincus Lapid, an Orthodox Jewish writer, concedes, yes, the facts are there. Jesus was clearly raised from the dead. Then he just argues about what could the meaning of that be. My friend, how else would you explain the change of the day of religious worship for these first century Jews, thousands and thousands of them, and suddenly, from Saturday to Sunday? Sociologists tell us that the most ancient parts of a culture are represented in its religious rites. Those are the things that are hedged about with doctrines to defend why we do it this way. So in any given culture in the world, you will find the things most likely were practiced hundreds or thousands of years ago in their religious practices. Makes sense? I understand that. Seems rational. 
Why then, all of a sudden, around the Mediterranean, do you have thousands of Jews changing their worship from Saturday to Sunday? Friends, I could go on and on posing questions that I will suggest to you the best answer for is that there is a God. He can do things as he wants. He has chosen to become incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth. He was raised from the dead. And it's that resurrection that explains these and so many more questions. Jesus Christ teaches that there is a life that is beyond this life. And he shows us that in his resurrection. Now, my Christian brothers and sisters, do not forget this. Your, your job doesn't ultimately define you, even here in Washington. The resurrection of Christ is the fundamental fact of the Christian's life. Just think about this for a moment. Let's say that you go to work this week, and you find out on Tuesday that you have been given a million dollars after taxes. All right? I mean, it's yours. Every single last penny of it is yours to do with as you please. How would that affect your life? Now, what I'm telling you is that something far more important than the vistas opened up by the pile of money has been opened up to you in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am telling you that for you as a Christian, the idea this world believes that the grave is the end is a lie. How does that affect your life this week? How are you living differently because you understand that most of your life is going to be lived on that side of the grave? How does that cause you to approach your decisions, your values, your priorities differently this week than it would have in the days when you may not have thought that or you didn't believe that? This is the fundamental fact in any Christian's life. This is the fundamental hope that we have, not marriage, not children, not a job, not some recognition. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's no Christian that needs to wonder if they'll be included in that. We are. That's the good news of the gospel. That God has overcome death and the grave in Christ. It is only because of the resurrection of Jesus that there is this unstoppable joy in Christianity. I have to say, sometimes, some of you have been brought up in the United States or in a very Christian part of the world, and you've only been around Christians, you may think religion equals joy. Because even if we're not always very good at it, and some people like it with drums and some people like it with organs, we all know we're trying to get happy. You know, we, we all know that Christianity is a, is a happy, joyful religion. Sometimes we think all religions are joyful. With, with all due respect to friends here from other religious traditions, and we always have them, I don't think my experience with friends who are in other religions suggests that's true. I don't want to say joy is the unique preserve of Christianity, but I think I will say that among the religions, joy is the distinctive preserve of Christianity. We have a joy because our hope is completed in Christ. We're not trying to follow the five-fold path well enough. We're not, we're not trying to, to have, you know, eight practices done correctly well enough for long enough. We're, we're not laboring under some burden. As, as one person has said, all the other religions in the world are the religions of do. Christianity is the religion of done. And friend, that brings about a joy and a confidence that is actually typical of Christianity as a religion. And it's only because of the resurrection of Jesus now, what draws the attention of many people to this verse, even to those who are quite familiar with their Bibles, is that last phrase where we learn, and this is number five, that Jesus was raised for our justification. Jesus was raised for our justification. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. In the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly predicted that he would be raised to life, but we're never really told why, what its significance was. I mean, other than it's part of the inauguration of the kingdom of God. Well, Paul here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us more clarity. And he does that especially here in our verse. He says he was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. So here we find that even as Jesus' death prevents our death, so his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. 
But, but what precisely does that final phrase mean? I mean, this is the only time in the New Testament that justification is linked to Christ's resurrection. We're used to thinking of Jesus' death as being for our justification, and it certainly is. Paul has written about that up in chapter 3. He'll write about it again in chapter 5. But how was his resurrection for our justification? Well, we're helped a little bit by looking at the context here in chapter 4. This is, as I say, the story of Abraham and Abraham having faith in God's promises. Look up at verse 17. You see there that Paul specifically praised Abraham for believing God, for believing, having faith in, trusting God, and then he says, who gives life to the dead. We know that it is God who justifies. You see these two fours in our verse. You see, for our sins, for our justification. The question in better understanding this has been, do these two fours have to mean the same thing? And the answer is, they don't have to mean the same thing. So I think the first is clearly retrospective. It's looking back. It's causal, deliberate over to death for our sins. We understand this. He was delivered over for our sins, both in the sense that because of our sins... It was only because he was identifying with sinners that he should die so. He hadn't sinned himself. And also in order for, in the sense of in order to accomplish his purpose in freeing us from our sins. So he, he died for our sins, but it's that last phrase that people wonder at, raised for our justification. And many suggestions have been made about this. Suffice it to say, I think that we can best understand the resurrection as the completion of the crucifixion. It's finished. It's done. It's, it's fully paid. It's in that sense that by it, Jesus secured our justification. I mean, consider the alternative. If Jesus had remained dead, what justification could we have faith in then? What atonement would there have been? Professor Cranfield writes, what was necessitated by our sins was in the first place Christ's atoning death. And yet had his death not been followed by his resurrection, it would not have been God's mighty deed for our justification. Charles Hodge of Princeton put it this way. Both, therefore, as the evidence of the acceptance of his satisfaction on our behalf and as a necessary step to secure the application of the merits of his sacrifice, the resurrection of Christ was absolutely essential even for our justification. Evidence that God had accepted his sacrifice necessary to apply its benefits to us. The resurrection was God's public vindication of Christ. And his claims. It was God's public acceptance of his sacrifice. It was, in that way, the basis for our faith in Christ. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians, without the resurrection, Christian faith is pitiable. If you got no resurrection, Christian faith, he says, is ineffective. It doesn't work. Justification, though, also observes or involves relationship. So, of course, if we're going to be united with Christ... Christ must be raised from the dead. We thought about this in the wonderful illustration of Marcus alone in the way he put it last week. To show us that justification is more than just pardon of sin. But it's a declaration that restores us to fellowship with a holy God. Lone says, the voice that spells forgiveness will say, you may go. You have been let off the penalty which your sins deserve. But the verdict, which means acceptance or justification, will say... You may come. You are welcome to all my love and my presence. You see, Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection were together one whole. What Paul is doing here at the conclusion of this chapter is poetically representing their effects. Neither of which would have happened considering only his crucifixion or only his resurrection. Both atonement and justification required both his death and his resurrection. Once the wrath of God against the sins of his people had been exhausted against his forsaken son, it was certain that Christ would ascend back to his heavenly father and that he would be raised from the dead. Because to remain in a state of death would be to remain under God's penalty for our sins, which would leave us unjustified. Spurgeon summarized it this way. The dying Christ has purchased for us our justification but the risen Christ will see that we get it. The risen Christ has come to bring it to us. And herein we rest. Jesus was raised 
for our justification. 120 years ago this weekend, an aging Spurgeon said to his, in his Sunday night sermon to his congregation in 1888, Of late I have heard things that I never dreamed of before, alleged even by professedly Christian ministers against the fundamental doctrines of God's word. And some have even dared to say that the substitution of Christ, his suffering in our stead, was not just. Then they have added that God forgives sin without any atonement whatever. But if the first be not just, what shall I say of the second? If God continually forgives sin without taking any care of his moral government, if there be nothing done for the vindication of his justice, how shall the judge of all the earth do right? Then the very foundations of the universe would be removed, and what would the righteous do? Depend upon this, whatever modern philosophy may say. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That is to say, without an atonement, an atonement consisting of the giving up of a life of infinite value, there's no passing by of human transgression. But my friends, this justification is not the same kind of merely objective act that propitiation is. If I can late in the sermon turn this into a theology lecture for just a moment. Propitiation was an act where God the Son satisfied the wrath of God the Father. Christ's giving of himself satisfied the demands of the Father's justice. Justification involves us. Though we could not be justified apart from the work of Christ, we must believe in order to be justified. That's what Paul's letter to the Romans is all about. So justification is what God has done for us, but it includes us. Justification includes our faith in the way that propitiation doesn't. So what is the application of this truth that Jesus was raised for our justification? Oh, my friend, it's that you believe it. That's the great application, that you believe that he is so raised and that he was so raised for your relationship with God so that you would be justified before God. Though your justification was purposed from the beginning of time, if you're one of his own, and worked out only through Christ's dying and rising work by the Spirit's gift of faith, nevertheless, we are only justified when we believe. And so, my friend, you should believe. You should trust what God has done in Christ. You should believe this. So if you would be saved, you must believe this message to be the truth. And you must trust God. We're called to have faith in God. And that faith will show itself in God's promises, as it did in Abraham's life. When he believed that God could even raise the dead, though he would call him to sacrifice his son Isaac, and all of the promises God had given Abraham were going through this son Isaac, still he knew God's command was certain, and he knew, as Paul says, that God could raise the dead. So he would believe God's promises and act on that belief, thus showing the truth of his faith. But friends, for us today, that will even more specifically mean faith in Jesus Christ, the promised one, and faith in Christ alone for our salvation. The nature of this saving, justifying faith isn't merely an historical faith. Oh yes, I think that happened. Nor merely a faith in Jesus in some religious sense, but as being less than the Son of God, our Savior. We're not called to believe in Christ merely as a teacher or merely as an example. He is both of those things. But if he were only those things, he would be the man running off the pier to save no one. We are called to believe in Jesus Christ as our substitutionary Savior. We are called to believe in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, our only Savior, crucified for all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. And such faith in Christ comes to us through his resurrection. Therefore, you could say that our justification comes to us through his resurrection. What was it Paul said in Romans 10? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for the great promises that we have. Those promises not only in your word, as great and awesome as that is, but in your word incarnate, lived and died and raised again for us. We give you praise for your great actions for our good. Oh God, we pray now that you would pour out your Holy Spirit and the gift of faith and belief and trust in you. Lord, we pray that for those of us who are your children, that we will be able to trust you through all the trials of life. Lord, we pray that you would keep our hope fresh and focused. And Lord, we pray for our friends who are not Christians. They would hear this as good news for them and that they would repent and believe. Oh God, we ask all this for our good and for your glory in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Tough to add to anything to that, isn't it? All right. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till next week. That's right. I got a wedding to take care of. Uh, May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy worn by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.